الحمد للہ الحمد للہ الذي هدانا لهذا وما كنا لنهتدي لولا ان هدانا الله واشهد ان لا اله الا الله وحده لا شريك له له الحمد وله الملك يحيي ويميت بيده الخير وهو على كل شيء قدير وأشهد أن محمدا عبد الله ورسوله وصفيه وخليله أرسله الله للناس نذيرا وبشيرا من يطع الله ورسوله وأولي الأمر من المؤمنين فقد رشد ومن يعص الله ورسوله وأولي الأمر من المؤمنين فقد ضل ضلالا بعيدا أوصيكم ونفسي أولا بتقوى الله وطاعته وأحذركم من عسيانه ومخالفة أمره أما بعد فإن خير الحديث كتاب الله وأحسن الهدي هدي محمد وشر الأمور محدثاتها وكل محدثة بدعة وكل بدعة ضلالة وكل ضلالة في النار يقول الله عز وجل وهو أصدق القائلين في كتابه الكريم ولأضلنهم ولأمنينهم ولآمرنهم فليبتكن خسر خسرانا مبينا وفي آية أخرى ظهر الفساد في البر والبحر بما كسبت أيدي الناس ليذيقهم بعض الذي عملوا لعلهم يرجعون Brothers and sisters, committed Muslims. The two ayat that were just quoted, the first one is the 119th ayah of Surah An-Nisa, and the second one is the 14th ayah of Surah Al-Rum. The first one, roughly translated, means, or before I translate it, let me just sort of set up the context of the ayah. This is a conversation that's taking place between Allah Ta'ala and Ash-Shaytan. And one of the reasons that Ash-Shaytan is condemned is because of what he says in this conversation with Allah. And so this is around this particular ayah is around the beginning of that conversation though not at the very beginning. And so this is shaitan talking. 
And shaitan is talking about what he is going to do to mislead man. And so he says to Allah, I will most surely lead them astray. And I will try to fill them up with misleading and misguiding desires. And I will command them and they will cut off the ears of their cattle for their idolatrous sacrifices. And then I will command them and they will alter the creation of Allah. And so whoever takes a shaitan to be his patron or sponsor instead of Allah, then indeed he has lost everything. And the second ayah from Surah Al-Rum, again roughly translated, it means disintegration and corruption has appeared on land and in the sea. By dint of what people have done, so that we might show them some of the dysfunction that they have created so that perhaps they may return to the right path. And obviously the reason that I'm quoting these two ayat is because they are pertinent to the subject that we are going to discuss today. And that subject, of course, uh, is related to the coronavirus. Given that this is part and parcel of our real lives, the real circumstances that we are having to deal with, And because it is something real and because it is something important and because it is generating a palpable level of fear in this society as well as the world, it is a subject that ought to be dealt with in our weekly meeting during the Jummah. Is it not a subject that we ought to bury our he heads in the sand about? If it's happening in the world, then we ought to be able to talk about it on Jummah. But where our talk about this issue is going to differ is that we are going to try to process the events and the circumstances around the coronavirus through the guidance that Allah has given us in the Qur'an. And for that reason, these two ayat that were recited earlier were quoted and I would like you to pay particular interest to a portion of the first ayah where a shaitan says to Allah وَلَآمُرَنَّهُمْ فَلَيُغَيِّرُنَّ خَلْقَ اللَّهِ and I will command them and they will change or corrupt or alter the creation of Allah. And so as I give out whatever information is going to be presented today, I would like to I would like you to keep these particular words of this ayah in the back of your mind. It has been impossible over the past two and a half months to not pay attention to the news that's coming out about the coronavirus. It spread where it started, its infectious capacity, and so on and so forth. And many people have dealt with 
how to deal with it if it infects you, how to avoid it. And there are many, many strategies in that regard that are available for all of us to inform ourselves better about. But as far as this particular talk is concerned, again, we are going to focus on the ayat that Allah Ta'ala has revealed in the Quran to try to develop some reference points about what exactly is going on and how we may take a look at our world and feel comfortable about interpreting what's going on. Now, as you already know, if you've been paying even sort of uh, parenthetical attention to the news, is that some trial balloons have already been floated about the insistence that, that this particular outbreak is the result of a biological weapons program gone bad. Or it was a biological weapons experiment whose results were accidentally leaked into the public space. Meaning certain microbes that were manufactured or created in a lab just happened to be leaked into the public space. Or at worst, other trial balloons have been floated. This, this could be a biological attack by the enemy of one country against a target country. Now we may never know the truth and if the truth does come out insofar as these kinds of things go it might take several decades for the truth to come out when those who actually prosecuted this whole affair in the present are long gone and dead. And so at that time when information gets declassified some of this information may begin to leak out. As it has with previous such experiments that took place 60 or 70 years ago. And that information is just now beginning to leak out now that this particular outbreak has taken place. And so while we may not be able to know the truth of what's going on right now, what may help us get a better feel for the territory is by considering certain patterns in the direct historical frame that preceded us. Many of us may be familiar with so-called computer viruses. Now computer viruses, they don't function the same way as biological viruses in that a host computer doesn't typically come in, in contact with other computers unless they share data and the host computer can infect other computers. But for those who know these types of things, they say that the vast majority of computer viruses are created by the very people who have an instant fix ready to sell to the market. And so there are certain people who want to create what you might call a need in the marketplace for which they have an instant solution or which for which only they have an instant solution. And so, in a sense, this is a way to make a quick buck, for those, especially from those who are very dependent on keeping their system secure, where transactions are taking place back and forth. And so the thing to keep in mind, and this has been going on now for thousands of years, there are certain people, clever people, will create a need that only they can satisfy. And we see this playing out in international politics all the time. You have the power countries in the world. They create crises that only they can manage. And so now let's get back to biological agents like the coronavirus. And as we look for patterns, 
that may better help us understand what's going on with this particular virus. Let us go back in history and consider one of the key players in such patterns. Many of you may have heard of this thing called Lyme disease. As far as symptoms go, this particular disease can be chronic and you may think that you've cured it but in a lot of instances there's a relapse if you've had initial symptoms and some of the in initial symptoms look like uh, malaise, fever, extreme fatigue, an inflammation of the brain on one side, swollen joints, constipation or exploding diarrhea, dementia. Even in sort of uh, healthy people who acquire Lyme disease, after they've had it for some time, they begin to experience memory loss. They may not remember their address. They may not remember their children's names. They may go out and forget how to go back home. And so, so many of these kinds of symptoms they exhibit in this thing called Lyme disease. Now in 1968, in this country, there was an unusual outbreak of three tick-borne diseases in the area of Long Island Sound. Now this is an estuary off the shores of New York and Connecticut. And one of these tick-borne diseases at the time was characterized as Lyme arthritis. And the reason that it was characterized as Lyme arthritis is because it was first the first documented cases were noted in the time in the small township of Lyme, Connecticut. Hence the name Lyme disease. The other two diseases in this particular unusual outbreak in 1968 were Rocky Mountain Spotted Fever, which is also associated with ticks. And a third one called Babesiosis. I'm not sure if I'm pronouncing that correctly, but nonetheless, this is a disease that occurs because of a, mal a malaria-like parasite that's carried by ticks or fleas. And at the time that this particular outbreak occurred, it sort of stumped all the medical professionals, even the infectious disease experts. They didn't know where it came from. They didn't know how to treat it. It was, for them, it was an anomaly. They had never seen it before. And so it took 13 years. And so by 1981, uh, a tick expert, by the name of, of Willy Bergdorfer. He was a Swiss-American tick expert, an entomologist. He was doing some investigation and he discovered a spirochete. This is a type of virus or bacterium that was responsible for what became known as Lyme disease. And when he discovered this particular spirochete, this particular sort of infectious disease agent, a pathogen, he became world famous because basically the, uh, the microbiological community, the infectious disease community in the whole world was looking for the pathogen that caused Lyme disease and here he is, he found it. And so he became famous traveled to conferences all around the world as an expert on Lyme disease and and ultimately this particular strain of spirochete was named after its discoverer and so it was a particular strain of uh, Bordelia 
or Borrelia, I'm sorry, Borrelia. And so it was called Borrelia burgdorferi. Uh, Berg, burgdorferi. Uh, in any case, uh, the reason that I'm going into this history, and it's important for us to pay attention, especially in reference to the ayah that I just quoted, is that there's mounting information and actually there's quite a bit of convincing evidence now because this particular outbreak took place in 1968 and since then many classified documents have become unclassified and so now there's mounting evidence accumulating evidence incriminating evidence that Lyme disease the spirochete that causes it is not a naturally occurring germ organism in the environment. That it's, this is something that was manufactured in a U.S. germ warfare or biological warfare laboratory and either it was accidentally released into the public space, into the environment, or it was released as a byproduct of a test that was done in the open environment. But of course the story does not end here. This particular tick expert, again his name was Willy Bergdorfer, he's a Swiss-American entomologist. This particular tick expert, for the better part of his life, since the early 50s all the way into the mid-90s, He was the go-to person in the U.S. Biological Warfare Program for the purpose of mass-producing germ agents and disease agents in ticks, in fleas, in mosquitoes, and spiders. He was the point man for a good 30 to 40 years for mass-producing these agents and sort of inserting them in host insects like ticks, fleas, and mosquitoes. Now if all of you thought that somebody invented Spider-Man out of thin air, then it's time for us, all of us, to get our heads out of the sand. Over the course of his tenure with the U.S. Biological Warfare's program, this particular scientist produced millions upon millions of disease agents that were hosted by small insects like ticks and fleas. He started his work in the early 1950s in a small laboratory in Montana in Hamilton, Montana, that was located next to the Rocky Mountains. And he came over as an entomologist, but he was quickly pulled in to the U.S. Biological Warfare Program, which was, at the time, in its infancy. And the reason that the United States was ramping up its investment in germ warfare or biological warfare was because of the Cold War. It had sort of convinced its own population, even though this was not going on on a motivated basis in the Soviet Union. It sort of convinced its population because the enemy is doing it, we better invest in doing it ourselves. So it created a climate of fear in order to invest billions upon billions of dollars into their germ warfare program. And so this particular scientist Again, he came over as an entomologist from Switzerland. He did the vast majority of his germ warfare work at a place called Camp Dietrich. Now, all of you may recognize that name because later on it was called Fort Dietrich. And Fort Dietrich is right up here in Frederick, Maryland. That was the epicenter at that time, back in the early 50s, that was the epicenter 
of the U.S. Germ Warfare Bio Biological Warfare Program. In fact, in the, in the mid-1950s, they built a building over there, and they called that building Anthrax Hotel. Now, that word anthrax may come back to mind because after 9-11, there was this anthrax scare. And so all the way back in the 1950s, that's 50 years before 9-11, there was work that was already being done with anthrax. And in sort of a jocular fashion, they would call this building 470 in the middle of Fort Detrick, Anthrax Hotel. And this is the place where they were running a pilot program to manufacture the most lethal and the most deadly microbes. So this particular person, it's not a coincidence that he discovered the spirochete that causes Lyme disease. He was working in the U.S. Biological Warfare Program for the better part of his life. He may have been the one that created or invented or in a, in a synthetic fashion developed this synthetic spirochete and introduced it into ticks which were accidentally released into the environment. He may have been the one that developed it or he may have trained one of the thousands of microbiologists that went ahead and developed this particular spirochete. Because now, today, as I'm saying, there is accumulating evidence that suggests that this particular spirochete that causes Lyme disease is not a natural part of the environment. That is, it was something that was manufactured in a bioweapons lab and introduced into the environment. One of the first jobs that this particular entomologist, Willy Bergdorfer, was engaged in was to produce, or, or one of the first jobs that he had was to try to figure out a way to force feed ticks and fleas with a serum or a soup of viruses and bacteria. And these, these viruses and bacteria were some of the most lethal disease agents that had been cultivated from all around the world. Disease agents like smallpox, yellow fever, botulinum toxin, and some of the other most deadly and lethal poisonous infectious disease agents. And so his job was to try to figure out how to force feed ticks and fleas with these disease agents, basically viruses and bacteria. And he was required to develop equipment which was going to be placed in U.S. germ warfare laboratories all around the country. And so again, he was the point man for doing this. One of the challenges in trying to force feed ticks with bacteria and viruses is that these bacteria and viruses are lethal enough to kill the ticks themselves. And so he had to try to figure out a combination of tick or flea species that would not be killed by these viruses or tick and flea species that would not themselves, their body chemistry would not kill these viruses and bacteria. So he had to figure out some combination of a symbiotic relationship between a tick or flea species and a, and a lethal virus or bacterium. And over the course of his research and his work, he developed scores of symbiotic combinations between tick and flea species and uh, lethal viruses and bacteria. And of course, this all this information became classified. And so once he developed these things in the laboratory, basically these are manufactured ticks and fleas. They don't occur naturally in the environment. And you keep this in mind, brothers and sisters. And keep the ayah in mind. Because it's one of shaitan's objectives to get man to change and alter and corrupt the creation of Allah. This is an ayah in Surah An-Nisa. So he created these disease agent or these infected manufactured fleas and ticks and mosquitoes in laboratory. But it obviously it's not enough to do that because 
these are intended as weapons against other human beings. So you've got to go out and field test them. You got to you got to know if they work or they don't work. And so if you don't test them against target populations, how are you going to know? So you have to go out in the real world and you have to test them. Okay, and so uh, so we already talked about the Anthrax Hotel, which uh, again, which is right up here in Frederick, Maryland. And if you're concerned about Lyme disease, it was probably developed right here, not 30 or 40 miles from Washington, D.C., and spread all around the world. But nonetheless, we're talking about developing this stuff in the lab, and then you have to go out and field test it. And in the United States at that time, this is back in the late... 1950s or early 1960s the most lethal chemical and biological agents were tested in this place called Dugway Proving Ground in Utah this is sort of a salt flat area which uh, which was I believe it's uh, about 50 to 60 miles southeast of Salt Lake City uh, there's basically very little vegetation growing there and the closest human populations to this proving ground are Native American reservations the major city Salt Lake City is 50 to 60 miles away but human populations of Native Americans and migrant worker colonies from Central and South America were only a few miles away and for insect to travel Few, a few miles is nothing. For a virus to travel a few miles, it's, it's nothing. For a virus to travel across the country, it's nothing. As we are seeing right now with the coronavirus. The way that it's transmitted. And so, so the most lethal bi biological and chemical agents were tested in this place called Dugway Pro Proving Ground in, in Utah, the United States. And in one of these experiments, the Army Biological Weapons Division had this, uh, you know, this facility right here in Frederick, Maryland. They had them manufacture 670,000 infected fleas. What they were infected with, we don't know exactly because this information hasn't been released as of yet. But they were infected with a lethal disease agent. And keep in mind that these 670,000 fleas were manufactured in the laboratory and they were now going to be tested on live animals in this proving ground in Utah. Now just to give you some coordinates, this particular proving ground or this particular part of the proving ground where they were going to test these biological or germ warfare materials the perimeter of it is 1200 meters and what they did is that they lined the perimeter with 125 caged guinea pigs and so what they wanted to do is that they wanted to take these 670,000 infected fleas and they wanted to they wanted to manufacture they wanted to put them in a cluster bomb and explode that cluster bomb 1 to 2000 feet above the proving ground. And that's what they did. They took these 670,000 infected fleas and they exploded it 1 to 2000 feet above the proving ground. And they felt that their experiment was a success because 177 of these fleas infected 45 of those 125 guinea pigs which were on the perimeter of the proving ground. And so they felt that this was a success. But brothers and sisters, keep in mind that they exploded 670,000 infected fleas over that proving ground. So what happened to the rest of those 669,827 fleas? What happened to the rest of them? <laughs> 
Did they all die? Did they go and infect other animals? And did those infected animals get eaten by larger animals? And then those larger animals, did they end up back in the human food supply chain? How did they damage the environment? How did they damage the birds? And hundreds of these experiments were done in the late 50s and early 60s. So is it any wonder that an infectious outbreak took place, an unusual infectious outbreak took place in 1968 in New York? Is that something unusual? Is that a coincidence? Is that an anomaly? When you're releasing this many manufactured germs with their insect hosts all over the country? This should give us some perspective on what's going on right now in our world today. There are a lot of unintended consequences that take place when your desire is for power and material wealth on earth. When you, when you have a desire for dominance, when Allah is the, is the one who deserves the position of dominance in the world. When you try to act like a god in the world. But you think that this is it? That you're going to just, you know, drop all of these infected fleas on a bunch of Native American reservations? Why you, they, they stopped being your enemy long time ago. Why not aim this stuff at some real enemies? And so back then, a real enemy was Cuba. Fidel Castro. And so millions upon millions of these infected insects were dumped on the sugarcane fields of Cuba to infect the workers of that society with a view to try to drive Fidel Castro out of power in Cuba. And if they're doing it in Cuba, you think your countries are safe? Brothers and sisters, this is something that affects us directly. The largest outbreak of the coronavirus outside of China is now in the Islamic Republic of Iran. This is something that's affecting you and, you and me directly. For the first time in some 40 odd years, there's nobody making tawaf around the Kaaba. This is something that affects you and me directly. 10% of the leadership in Islamic Iran is infected with this virus. Coincidence? Happenstance? Serendipity? According to the people that have produced these disease agents, The perfect incapacitating agent is one that dis disables the vast majority of a target population. And ideally, the disease that it causes should be undetectable by whatever instruments or testing procedures they have available. Yes, they, they, they create these disease agents with these parameters. that they should be undetectable. They don't want the people to get better. They want them to stay sick. They want them to die. This whole process in the biological weapons program here in the United States has started with seeding bugs and insects with disease agents. But again, with the, with the, with the huge and the sort of the, the leap in advances in microbiology now they don't have to implant these disease agents in live bugs anymore they can just take live insect cells put them in a flask and implant these disease agents in these live insect cells they can in a sense they can grow these disease agents in a petri dish 
And nowadays, with the spraying and the weaponizing technologies that are available, and you might remember that in order to weaponize anthrax, all you have to do is attach some nozzles to an airplane and fly it over a target population. We only got wind that that technology exists after 9-11. But they were talking about it way back in the 1960s, long before it, it was weaponized and expected to be launched at a, at a target population somewhere in the world. So we said that it started with seeding disease agents in bugs and it moved up to growing disease agents in petri dishes, making them part of liquid suspensions so that they could be sprayed in vast quantities and disseminated in vast areas of the earth. But in order for these disease agents to infect the target population, these disease agents have to be specifically chosen or they have to be manufactured and invented in such a way that the target population doesn't have any natural immunity against these disease agents. After all, when you develop a biological weapon, you want the target population to die. Or you want them to be incapacitated to such an extent that an invading army can just go in and, and wreak havoc with no resistance whatsoever. And so you want these disease agents to be as virulent as possible and you want them to be resistant to antibiotics and you want whatever testing procedures are available in the society not to be able to detect them. And so the only way that you can create disease patterns in this way is not to look for something in nature because stuff like that doesn't exist in nature. No, you want to custom manufacture these disease agents. And in order to do that, you have to manipulate them genetically. And so the purpose of genetic manipulation, insofar as germ warfare programs are concerned, is to make them as virulent as possible, to make them resistant to antibiotics, and to, in, uh, to make them sort of invisible to whatever testing procedures are available in target societies. And just by me talking about it, you know that I'm talking about it based on information that has been declassified. What kind of stuff is going on that you don't know about? So now let's get back and talk a little bit more about Lyme disease. This particular person that we talked about, his name is Willy Bergdorfer. He died in 2014. And he's one of those people that knew all along, or for a good part of his tenure with the U.S. Biological Warfare Program, he knew what he was doing. And there are thousands of others. This, this stuff is created by real human beings. It could be your neighbors. We talked about Frederick, Maryland right up here. So literally, they could be your neighbors. These agents are developed by real people like you and me. Some of these real people have a conscience or they get a conscience. And this is one particular person who couldn't live with his conscience for what he was doing. And so basically on his deathbed, uh, by the time that uh, he reached old age, he had acquired Parkinson's. And before he became completely incapacitated, his conscience wouldn't let him stay silent. And so much of this information about the U.S. germ warfare program, it comes from him talking. And one of the things that he said is that the, the United States government knows that Lyme disease is chronic. And that it can relapse after the initial infection. And that it is most debilitating and most dangerous the younger the infected patients are. 
So children are the most susceptible and they are the most likely to not recover from a Lyme disease infection. Now, if this is a biological agent that was created in a U.S. germ warfare laboratory, you would expect that there would be some kind of cover-up taking place. You wouldn't want people who are infected with Lyme disease, you wouldn't want it to be declared to be a real disease. Because then people would be looking for cures and they'd be looking for answers. And so you'd, be wanting, you'd want to be running some interference to make sure that there are a whole bunch of impediments in the way of people who are infected with this particular spirochete. That's exactly what's been happening since the 1960s. Ever since the first public outbreak of Lyme disease took place, the Centers for Disease Control and the Food and Drug Administration, they've approved protocols to test for Lyme disease that are only as effective as a coin flip. So you could go in and get tested by these protocols and half the time they would tell you that you either don't have Lyme disease or that you have something else. But insofar as AIDS is concerned, the testing procedure for, AID is 90, for AIDS is 99% accurate. It's only one out of 200 cases that's misdiagnosed. As far as Lyme disease is concerned, it's between 88 and 100 cases out of 200 that are misdiagnosed, 50%. There are obviously some forces that are sitting in U.S. intelligence agencies and the U.S. Centers for Disease Control that don't want the truth to come out. Otherwise, they wouldn't be running all this interference that they've been running for the past 40 or 50 years. Brothers and sisters, this is the real world that we live in. The only reason that we are talking about it is because we are affected by a similar crisis, a so-called pandemic that is affecting the world right now. And were we not to go into this background, because right now, the way that I understand it, the world's researchers, the world's smart people, the world's microbiologists, the infectious disease specialists, they're having a whale of a time trying to control the spread of this coronavirus. This is a real problem in the real world that we live in. It's not as if the world hasn't encountered problems like this before. It just hasn't been able to focus in on the human beings that are involved in spreading this kind of fitna all over the earth. And yet we know, as I'm saying, that all we can do is look for patterns that may better help us understand what's going on in our world today. And my job today was basically to give you some information and you can make of this information what you will. أَقُولُ قَوْلِ هَذَا وَاسْتَغْفِرُ اللَّهَ لِي وَلَكُمْ فَاسْتَغْفِرُوهُ يَغْفِرُ لَكُمْ فَاسْتُرْشِدُوهُ يُرْشِدْكُمْ Alhamdulillah, wassalatu wassalamu ala rasulillah. Zahar al-fasadu fil badri wal-bahr bima kasabat aydi al-nas liyudhiqahum ba'd al-ladhi amilu la'allahum yarji'oon. As we said earlier, this is the first time in some 40-odd years 
that nobody's making tawaf around the Kaaba. This is not the first time in history that's happened. It happened in 1979 and before that it happened several times. When the Kaaba in a sense was literally bombed uh, one or two hundred years after our Prophet ﷺ passed away. So this is not in a, uh, this is not something that never occurs but it is unusual the leading research in the world in bioweapons programs and germ warfare programs are conducted right here in the United States and in Israel but of course both of these two countries are tied at the hip it's not as if they're different countries The rest of the world which is engaged in bioweapons programs or bioweapons research is in catch-up mode with the United States and Israel. Either it's in catch-up mode or it has to steal this technology in order to keep up. But it's pretty hard to keep up because the centers still of the world's sort of computer science revolution is still right here in the United States and this has had a tremendous impact on the fields of microbiology and infectious diseases to such an extent that now you can design what you might call our designer microbes with all the characteristics I described earlier and many many more you can literally go in and splice genes together with viruses and bacteria and design the kind of infectious microbe that you want undetectable resistant to antibiotics lethal you know what have you you can you can literally go in and uh, on a piece of paper design this microbe and then with computer technology actually produce it in the lab now the rest of the countries in the world they're going to have a very hard time keeping up with this technology And so we know that around the world, especially in the Muslim world, the Muslim majority world, the territory is dotted with U.S. military bases. What we don't know is how many U.S. biological weapons and germ warfare laboratories are dotted all across the Muslim world. Back in the 1960s, there was a U.S. Biological Weapons Laboratory in Cairo, Egypt. And this speaker, right here, this humble speaker right in front of you, he has first-hand knowledge that there was a U.S. Biological Weapons Laboratory in Pakistan, between the borders of India and Pakistan, that was producing diseased mosquitoes, infected mosquitoes, manufactured mosquitoes, and so now, in that area, there's a type of hepatitis that doesn't occur anywhere else in the world. You may call it a designer hepatitis. It's called hepatitis E. A designer hepatitis. And if you're a betting man, you would say that in this area where you have this hepatitis E, there's a U.S. germ warfare laboratory nearby. And if you're a betting man, you'd be right. All across the Muslim world, all across the third world, all across the African countries, there are U.S. germ warfare laboratories that are doing real research. And much of this activity in target countries is coordinated through the U.S. Embassy. And so if you have a U.S. Embassy in your country, brothers and sisters, you are literally playing with fire. You are literally playing with fire. And so we've talked about the lay of the land, the territory that we're dealing with. So what is to be done about it? 
And obviously we can spend several khutbahs in trying to detail what can be done about it. But if you think that every time a biological weapons lab produces a disease agent that gets out and infects mass populations all across the world and that every time this happens that you're going to produce some kind of a vaccine and herd people to, to get vaccinated and then when the next agent comes out then you herd them to get another vaccination and you, in a reactionary way that you just keep going from one fire to another fire. That these people have you coming and going. The thing to do in my judgment is to overturn the system that is producing these fitnas to begin with. Get rid of that system and you get rid of the fitna. Don't in a reactionary way deal with the symptoms of the problem. Deal with the problem. And if you target the problem, then perhaps there is some sense of security and peace in your future. Allahumma arina al-haqqa haqqan wa rizuqna tiba'a wa arina al-baatila baatilan wa rizuqna ijtinaabah Allahumma aghfir lil-mu'minina wal-mu'minat wal-muslimina wal-muslimat al-ahyai minhum wal-amwat innaka qareebun sami'un mujibu da'awat Allahumma rabbana atina fi dunya hasanah وفي الآخرة حسنة وقنا عذاب النار ربنا لا تزغ قلوبنا بعد إذ حديتنا وهب لنا من لدنك رحمة إنك أنت الوهاب إن الله وملائكته يصلون على النبي يا أيها الذين آمنوا صلوا عليه وسلموا تسليما اللهم صل على محمد وعلى آل محمد كما صليت على إبراهيم وعلى آل إبراهيم إنك حميد مجيد اللهم بارك على محمد وعلى آل محمد كما باركت على إبراهيم وعلى آل إبراهيم إنك حميد مجيد بسم الله الرحمن الرحيم والعصر إن الإنسان لفي خسر إلا الذين آمنوا وعملوا الصالحات وتواصوا بالحق وتواصوا بالصبر ومن أظلم ممن منع مساجد الله أن يذكر في اسمه وسعى في خرابها أولئك ما كان لهم أن يدخلوها إلا خائفين لهم في الدنيا خزي ولهم في الآخرة عذاب عظيم عباد الله إن الله يأمر بالعدل والإحسان وإيتاء ذي القربى وينهى عن الفحشاء والمنكر والبغي يعظكم لعلكم تذكرون ولا ذكر الله أكبر والله يعلم ما تصنعون وأقم الصلاة